Amen. Perched atop our nation's capital in Washington, D.C., is a 20-foot statue known as the Freedom Lady. She was sculpted in Rome and imported to America. But during the delivery, the ship encountered a bitter storm, howling winds, raging waves. The seas were so severe that the captain feared the boat might capsize, so he ordered the cargo to be thrown overboard. But when the crew went to toss over the Freedom Lady, the skipper stopped them. He shouted over the noise of the storm, No, never! We'll flounder before we throw freedom away. And this is Paul's message in Galatians chapter 5. Never throw away your freedom. Yet many Christians do. Legalism is the storm that rocks the boat of faith. It's the mentality that a right standing with God is up to me. That God will reject me unless I do this or I do that. Whether the rules I try to keep come from God or of my own making or a part of a tradition... The idea is the same, that our work proves our worthiness. And yet the gospel of grace teaches us just the opposite. There is nothing we can do to earn God's favor. On our own, even the most obedient among us is unworthy. But God extends His grace. On the cross, Jesus did all that needed to be done to resolve our sin and to earn for us God's favor. Now, our job is to simply humble ourselves and put our faith in the merits of another. But sometimes the storm blows, and we get bullied by legalism, by a friend or a forceful preacher, or even our own overworked conscience sometimes tells us that we should be doing more, and we doubt the sufficiency of Christ. We add a few good deeds just to be on the safe side, we think. But hey... Trying to be on the safe side will put you on the wrong side. For when we lean toward legalism, we diminish the cross of Christ. We drift from God's grace. In essence, we throw away our freedom. Well, Paul warns the Galatians. He begins his warnings in chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Jesus has set us free from the treadmill of performance-based religion. It's no longer about our striving and never measuring up. We live by faith in the merits of Jesus. You remember in Acts chapter 15, Peter told the Jerusalem church not to expect the Gentile believers to conform to the Jewish law. He said in verse 10, Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Notice Peter referred to the demands of the law as a yoke. It's a harness that chokes off the joy of Jesus, that chokes off the life of God's Spirit. Anytime Christians stop living by faith in Jesus and rely on their own deeds, they buckle back on that yoke. This is what the false teachers did to the Galatians. Rather than teach them to live by grace and faith, they ramped back up the treadmill. They demanded that the Christians in Galatia live by a concoction of laws and traditions. It was a lethal self-righteousness. 
And here's the problem. You see, the legalist appears so pious, so disciplined, so sincere. New believers get intimidated. Who am I to buck such a spiritual person? Some religious folks like to throw their weight around. By enforcing their rules, they can control others or make themselves look good or create some kind of pecking order in the church. And the new believer gets sucked into this because of their ignorance or fear or maybe uncertainty. They become saddled with unnecessary baggage. A person who died, a person who Jesus died to set free ends up living under a yoke of bondage. See, this is why freedom is always unfinished business. That's not only true politically, but it's also true spiritually. There's always somebody trying to rob us of our liberty. And this is why Paul tells the new believers in Galatia, stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. A yoke is no joke. There will always be people trying to refit you for a new harness. Stand fast and stay free. Well, Paul tells the Galatians in verse 2, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Now, one of the legalistic stipulations being forced on the Galatians was Jewish circumcision. This was an Old Testament symbol adopted by God's people Israel. But the Judaizers, these false teachers in Galatia, insisted that the Christians should also wear this outward physical badge. Understand, real faith is under the lapel. It's unseen. See, religion relies on external badges rather than faith. This is why some churches emphasize activities and commitments like church membership or baptism or daily devotions or homeschooling your kids or speaking in tongues or tithing or keeping a holy day. All these activities are good and serve a purpose. But when they're made mandatory for pleasing God, you insult His grace and you diminish the work of Jesus. It's faith alone that makes a person right with God. And notice Paul's strong warning in verse 2. If you adopt this thinking, well, I'll just practice a little legalism just to be on the safe side. Remember, it's going to put you on the wrong side. For Paul says, if you do this, Christ will profit you nothing. Sounds like a big deal to me. Faith in Christ is an all or nothing proposition. Add anything to your trust in the work of Jesus. Hey, get confident in your own works or rely on your traditions just in case. And Paul says you'll forego the saving merits of Christ. His benefits will no longer accrue to you. And then he says in verse 3, And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You see, the legalist picks and chooses which rules and rituals he wants to obey. But that's not how it works. God's law isn't some spiritual smorgasbord. If you live by the law, then you are under all of the law. Did you kindle a fire on the Sabbath day yesterday? Did you flip on a light switch? 
Did you get the coals going on your barbecue in the backyard and make those hamburgers for the big game yesterday? Yeah, you did. You did. Well, if you did, you blew it. You broke the law. Do you keep a kosher diet? Ever bit into a ham and cheese sandwich? If you have, you're a lawbreaker. Hey, bow to the law in one point and you're a slave to it all. Verse 4 is the strongest warning yet. He says, you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. In other words, it's one or the other. You can't trust in the work of Christ and in your own works. Either you're living by law or by grace. He says, for we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Our only hope of being right with God is by faith in the work of Jesus, which poses a question. If we stop having faith, how can we continue to be right with God? And here Paul issues some stern warnings. If a believer abandons their faith and stops trusting in Jesus, notice, they are estranged from Christ. They've fallen from grace. Christ profits them nothing. These are all faithful, serious statements, which make it hard for me to say such a person maintains their salvation. Now understand, none of us receive God's salvation because of anything that we've done or not done. So, none of us can lose our salvation because of anything we've done or not done. It's not about works. It's not as if there are certain sins that are salvation snuffers. Commit these and you're no longer saved. We obtain and maintain a right standing with God by faith. Yet evidently, faith isn't a once and for all status. Faith isn't a sign on the bottom line kind of proposition. Faith is more a living thing. It's more like a plant. If you want the plant to live, you water it and you feed it. But if you ignore the plant, it shrivels up and dies. Which reminds me of the plants I should have been watering this week while my wife's been out of town. But that's another story. This is how Paul sees salvation. He declares in Colossians chapter 1 verse 23, You, he has reconciled if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded in steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. You need to continue in your faith. Some churches believe in what's called once saved, always saved. That once you believe in Jesus, you're in regardless of any future decisions. I used to believe that until I read the New Testament. For Paul is emphatic throughout to be saved, we need to continue in our faith. It has nothing to do with our works. It has all to do with faith. But faith is something we need to continue in and persist in. Verse 6 tells us, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. In Christ, religious deeds and badges don't matter. God looks below the badge to our heart. What makes you right with God is not whether you tithe or don't or whether you attend church or stay home, or whether you read your Bible or your newspaper. 
All these acts may be ways to demonstrate your love for God and grow in God, but they don't determine God's love for you. He accepts us and He blesses us, not because of our feats, but because of our faith. You know, a lot of pastors are afraid to preach on grace. They think that if they do, they'll give up their leverage. If the church members realize the reason God blesses us is because of what Jesus did, not what they do, what motivation will they have to serve and to work and to obey? I mean, who will come to the church work day if everyone thinks God will bless them the same if they stay home? Yet these pastors don't understand the power of God's grace. For convince a person that God blesses them regardless. And it causes them to love the Lord. They'll want to serve Him, but not because they have to, because they want to. Paul tells us how this operates in verse 6. He says, faith works through love. See, the more you know of God's love for you, the more you'll trust Him. And the more you trust Him, the more He'll demonstrate His love. The law drives a wedge between us and God. Grace creates a bond. And then verse 7, Paul asks the Galatians, You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. This toxic mixture of grace and grunt that the Galatians were following wasn't the message that Paul had preached to them. He warns them, he says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Legalism is like yeast. It corrupts by puffing up. It plays on our pride. It's a show-me religion. Look at how good I am. This kind of attitude can pollute a whole church. Verse 10, he says, I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. The message that Paul preached was the cross of Christ. And this is what offended the Jews. That Jesus had to die meant that man could never be good enough for God on his own. God's grace is an assault on human pride. Paul wasn't the target of Jewish persecution because he preached Old Testament legalism. Paul taught amazing grace. Now keep in mind, the flashpoint for the Jewish legalists there in Galatia, was circumcision. This was the rule on which they insisted. Hey, if you weren't circumcised, there was no way that you could please God. And this is why Paul gets upset in verse 12. He gets angry. He says, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. You know what he's saying? If you think clipping the male foreskin is what pleases God, then why don't you just go all out and emasculate yourself? That's what he's saying. He's getting angry. One paraphrase puts it, Why don't these agitators, obsessive as they are about circumcision, go all the way and castrate themselves? Verse 13, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another. Now for four chapters, Paul commands us to hold fast to our liberty in Christ. But he knows that he can be misunderstood. You know, recently I ran across a few headlines that pose the same risk. 
Police begin campaign to run down jaywalkers. That could be misunderstood. Iraqi head seeks arms. How about this one? Astronaut takes blame for gas in spacecraft. Local high school dropouts cut in half. Man minus ear waves hearing. Yeah, I bet he does. In other words, some things can be misunderstood. Well, Paul also realizes that he can be misunderstood. Just because we're free from living under the law doesn't mean we have liberty to sin. Yes, rules no longer govern a Christian's behavior, but that doesn't mean that his or her behavior doesn't matter. Law is out, yes, but love is in. We swap rules for a relationship. See, pleasing God is still the goal, but the method has changed. The law worked from the outside in. You conform to the rules, but grace puts us in touch with God, and His love transforms us from the inside out. Paul encourages us. He says, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Paul wants us controlled, not by law or by lust, but by love. You know, people gravitate toward the extreme. It's either legalism or license, but grace produces love. The love of Christ produces gratitude toward God. Grace isn't an excuse to sin, it's a reason not to sin. And then in verse 14, for all the law is fulfilled in one word. And here it is, drum roll please. One word sums up the whole Old Testament law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole intent of the law was to love. He says, but... If you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. One of the most famous bites in history occurred in 1997 in the heavyweight title bout between Evander Holyfield and Mike Tyson. You remember the two boxers, they were tied up when Tyson leaned in and took a bite out of Holyfield's ear. The boxing world was appalled by such a barbaric, classless tactic. And yet I wonder how many Christians have taken a bite out of another brother or sister. Paul is saying no one is free to snip at each other with gossip or take a bite out of another man's reputation. Believers need to walk in love. Verse 16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh is a biblical name for selfish desires. And how does a person overcome a lifestyle of selfishness and self-gratification? Some might answer willpower. Just they need to have some willpower. Others might say the power of positive thinking or self-discipline or the 12 steps or maybe some psychological therapy. The answer is so much simpler. Paul tells us, walk in the Spirit And you shall not fulfill the desires of the flesh. If you'll get caught up and wrapped up in God and in His Spirit, you won't have time to pursue your own lusts. He says, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. 
Here Paul pinpoints two approaches to life. Either you see yourself in Christ or apart from Christ. Either you're in the Spirit or you're in the flesh. Either your world revolves around Jesus or it revolves around you. Either you're into Jesus or you're into yourself. And he's saying get caught up in Jesus. Walk in the influence of the Holy Spirit and you'll lose interest in fleshly desires. Paul tells us in verse 18, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The influence of the Holy Spirit accomplishes what the law could never achieve. It produces in us that love for one another. Power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, these two approaches to life produce predictable paths. For Paul lists both the works of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit. The flesh, that is you, me apart from Christ. It's me at work. And it produces works. The work of the flesh. But the Holy Spirit inside is God at work. And the result is fruit. See, the flesh is man-made. The fruit is spirit-grown. And he lists the works of the flesh. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath. Or Have you ever lost your temper? Selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Notice this isn't an exhaustive list. And the like means all the other stuff that's in the same category. See, this is not an impressive resume. And yet, left to ourselves, this is what you can expect from us. This is what we're capable of. Illicit sex and moral perversions and turmoil and temper and telling lies and believing lies and intoxication and the like. That's what you can expect from us in the flesh. Here's why we needed the law for so long. To protect us from us. It was a safeguard. It was a playpen until Christ came. And obviously, the works of the flesh, our works, can never work our way to God. For Paul says, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things, or literally practice them habitually, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the idea here isn't that a single act of envy or hatred or sexual sin is going to send a person to hell. But Paul is saying that a person who consistently practices the works of the flesh is proving that he or she doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, and that will send a person to hell. The problem is evil habits. Remember, this was the problem the Pope had with the nuns. Dirty habits. Just just thought it was time to insert a little levity into the Bible study. But if you walk in the Spirit, you can also predict the results. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Notice nine spiritual fruits are grown in three clusters of three each. Cluster one flows from our relationship with God. 
love and joy and peace. How beautiful is that? Cluster number two involves our relationships with each other. Long-suffering, that is patience and kindness and goodness. And cluster number three centers on our relationship with ourselves. Faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And none of these attributes are man-made. They're not mustered up by the flesh or the work of God's Spirit. Try on your own to conjure up joy. Or try to be kind on your own. Or try to exert some self-control. It's fake fruit. It's not going to last. But trust in the Holy Spirit to produce what you lack. And He'll manufacture true, genuine, juicy fruit. Real fruit. A spontaneous joy. A peace that flourishes despite the chaos around us. A lasting patience. Genuine kindness. Decision-altering self-control. This is the beautiful life. And it can only be lived by the power of God's Spirit in us. Verse 24. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. See, when we become Christians, we die with Christ and then He rises in us. But we need to acknowledge this reality in our daily lives. Are we renouncing the flesh and its desires? And are we trusting in God's Spirit to live His life in us? Paul says in verse 25, For if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. God makes us spiritually alive by His Spirit. That's why we need to lean into the Holy Spirit. Every day, in every way, in all that we do. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. God expects better from His kids. Walk in the Spirit, and we'll walk in love. Well, chapter 6 begins, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. The word translated trespass refers to a lapse, a stumble, a slip-up. Somebody told me recently, if you're walking down the street and you slip and you accidentally fall, if they laugh at you, you know you're still young. If they run over to try to help you, it means that you're getting older. But this is a spiritual slip-up. Paul isn't referring here to the false teacher who's deliberately spewing false doctrine. He's already told us what to do with that person. Cast him out. This is the brother who falls victim to a weakness. He needs to be restored. The word restore is used in the New Testament to describe the setting of a broken bone. And this is a tender task, is it not? It involves a careful evaluation of the break then a gentle manipulation of the bone to set it back in place. Which is the reason this job is to be done by someone experienced, someone who's spiritual, not a novice. Paul is specific. You who are spiritual restore such a one. And how do you do it? In a spirit of gentleness. The word gentleness is translated most often in other places as meekness, which means strength under control, firmness tempered by love. When a little boy comes to mom with a boo-boo and mom doesn't start poking and prodding, not immediately, not until she wraps her arms around him and affirms her love to him. And so it is with the saint who slipped up 
we need to approach them gently. You don't just barge in with both barrels blazing. Hey, buddy, shape up or ship out. You'll run him off before you can bandage his wounds. No, those who are spiritual should restore such a one with a spirit of gentleness. And the best way to strike that balance between firmness and gentleness is to take heed to what comes next. Paul says, considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. Hey, be humble or you'll stumble. Our attitude needs to be, but for the grace of God, so go I. Never underestimate your own ability to blow it. Legalism creates a self-righteous, judgmental church, while grace produces a healing environment. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. And then Paul continues in verse 2, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. See, after a brother is restored, our job isn't over. For in the restoration, you discover that there were stresses, there were pressures that led to his sin. Thus, we need to help him bear the burdens until God removes them or until he learns how to carry them. When we get under someone else's load and help lighten it in some way, as Paul says, we fulfill the law of Christ. He says, for if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Reminds me of the mama whale. You know what the mama whale said to her baby? Son, it's only when you're spouting that you get harpooned. Same is true for us. Don't get haughty. Don't start spouting. Don't think yourself to be something when you're nothing. At times we're called on to carry someone else's load. At other times, they help us carry our load. As a Christian, we spend time on both ends of the load. Verse 4, But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. At first this sounds contradictory. Do we bear another's burdens or do we bear our own load? And I think the answer is both. We're responsible to help each other, certainly. But my my responsibility for you never supersedes your responsibility for yourself. Your burden is still your burden. And God promises that We won't be tempted above what we can handle. Thus, we should bear our own load as well. Now the topic shifts to spiritual investments. And one of the best investments that you can make is in blessing a good Bible teacher. That is according to verse 6. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Did you know that Christianity was the first religion whose teachers relied on the voluntary contributions of the folks they taught? Judaism taxed the people to pay the priests. Roman religions exacted fees and dues. But a tithe is not a tax. Rather than an invoice, think of your offering as an investment. Bless the teacher in proportion to how much you've been blessed by what they've taught. Once there was a pastor, he told his church that he had a $200 sermon that would take him 10 minutes to preach. He had a $100 sermon that would take him 30 minutes. 
And he had a $10 sermon that would take more than an hour. He told everyone that once the offering had been collected and counted, then he'd decide which sermon he'd preach. Pretty shrewd pastor, if you ask me. Well, in verse 7, Paul continues his thoughts on spiritual investments. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Now, here's a natural law that applies to the spiritual realm. You know, sow corn, and you'll be up to your ears in corn, won't you? Yeah. A farmer understands this principle. He would never sow corn and expect soybeans. You reap what you sow. And the same is true spiritually. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Hey, sow to the flesh. In other words, entertain thoughts that promote you, your self-centeredness, your selfishness. And you're going to end up corrupt. You're going to be rotten on the inside. Here's the rule of thumb. Garbage in, garbage out. Fill your head with impure images and filthy talk, and your life will gravitate downward. You'll wake up in bondage to what you thought was just fun and games. Notice what Paul says. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. This is a natural law, a divine principle. It's like the law of gravity. You can doubt gravity. You can deny it. You can try to defy it. You can jump off a bridge and shout all the way down that you don't believe in gravity. Even halfway down, you can shout out, see, nothing's happened to me yet. Then splat. God is not mocked. Like the guy who sowed his wild oats Monday through Saturday, then went to church on Sunday and prayed for a crop failure. It doesn't work. Hey, when you download a song, or when you rent a movie, or when you browse a website, I hope you remember, you reap what you sow. And realize what's so deceptive about the law of sowing and reaping. You seldom reap in the same season that you sow. You know, if harvest came the day after the planting, farming would be pretty easy. But it doesn't. A farmer seldom reaps in the same season that he sows. He sows, and then he waters, and he weeds, and he waits, and then he finally harvests. And the same is true spiritually. What we sow today can take years to sprout its fruit. Oh, adultery is fun for a while. But when the infidelity blossoms, there's hell to pay. And on the other hand, studying your Bible, learning to pray can be hard. Like planting on a hot day. But when the harvest comes, its riches are well worth it. If you want to grow a strong faith, then sow good seed. Log on to good Bible teaching. Listen to Christian music and take walks with God. And think God's thoughts. For the more you sow to the Spirit, the more you'll reap. And this is why Paul says in verse 9, Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. And this is our biggest obstacle. It's weariness. We get discouraged. We can get tired and lose heart. That's why we need to endure and press on. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those 
who are of the household of faith. You know, we all take care of our family before we reach out to strangers, don't we? And Paul's saying the same should be the priority in the church. Let's help everyone, but first let's take care of our own church. Paul starts to wrap up his letter to the Galatians in chapter 6, verse 11. He says, see with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 17, we learn that Paul dictated his letters through a stenographer. He would then sign them with his own signature to ensure his, their authenticity. But Galatians was the exception. For Paul was so passionate about this letter, its subject, God's grace, its, its recipients, the Galatians, that he wrote this letter with his own hand. Paul penned Galatians himself. Some folks think Paul wrote in large letters because he was having problems with his eyes that his thorn in the flesh had flared up. Of course, it could have been that he was just wanting to make sure that the Galatians read every word, so he wrote it in large letters. At the bottom of the Declaration of Independence, you find the words John Hancock in abnormally large letters. Why? Hancock used such large script to be sure King George saw his name. This might have been Paul's motive. Paul concludes Galatians. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. These false teachers were such hypocrites. They insisted that the Gentiles be circumcised. For to preach grace would have meant that they would have been persecuted. He says, for not even those who are circumcised keep the law but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Though they browbeat the Galatians into circumcision, there were other areas of the law that they didn't keep themselves. They were hypocrites. All they cared about was manipulating the Galatians, proving that they had power. All the Galatians were to these, these false teachers were just little notches on their belt. Verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. Paul did more for the cause of Christ than any other Christian who has ever lived. And yet when he looked at his resume, his only reason to boast was what Jesus had done for him. The cross changed Paul's life. He says, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. See, before Paul came to Jesus, the world's power and the world's wealth and the world's religion had a hold on Paul. But at the cross, it was exposed for the evil that it is. The world's system all joined together to execute an innocent man for no other reason than jealousy and fear. And after seeing what this world did to Jesus, Paul would never again be enchanted by the world and its charms. He died to whatever hold this world had on him. Author Neil Strait makes a penetrating observation. He says, Christ on our cross is the way Calvary really reads. He died for us in our place. We then are debtors. Strange that so often... We act like we owe nothing. 
Why is it when the world knocks on your heart's door, you react as if you owe it a hearing? Not so. Let's renounce this world and any hold it might have on us. We have a debt for sure, but it's not to this world. Our obligation is to the Savior hanging on the cross. And then verse 15. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Again, it's not what you've done or can do for God that counts, but what Jesus has done for you. We are a new creation in Christ. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now from now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. See, the false teachers in Galatia, they had not only questioned the legitimacy of Paul's message, but also the sincerity of his ministry. And he's had enough of it. Finally, he rips off his shirt and he shows them the crisscross scars on his torso. He says, this is the result of the stoning I took in Lystra. This is proof of my suffering, the suffering that I endured to bring the gospel to you Galatians. His scars testified of his sincerity. Adoniram Judson was a Christian missionary to Burma. For seven years he was imprisoned and kept in leg irons and handcuffs for preaching the gospel. His wrists and his ankles bore severe scars. Upon his release, Judson asked the Burmese king if he might be granted permission to preach about Jesus. The king responded, My people are not fools enough to listen to anything a missionary might say, but I fear they might be impressed by your scars and turn to your religion. Paul, too, spoke by his scars. And then Paul ends the gospel of grace. Brethren, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let me close with a quote that I think sums up the book of Galatians. Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. As Christians, we are saved and we stand And we live and we grow all through faith in God's amazing grace.